All right. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being here. It's funny. I was thinking this morning, uh, <clears throat> the way church goes for a lot of people, uh, and this is pastor's perspective, uh, in the winter, people wake up and go, oh, it's just too cold. I need to stay home. And in the summer, people wake up and go, it's just too nice outside. I got to stay home and go play outside. People wake up and they say, it's raining. I really don't want to get out in the rain. Or people wake up and they go, it's sunny. I got to get outside. I can't go to church. And so, you know, it's funniest week of July 4th. It's summer. You never know who's going to come. But thank you for joining us today for church. Our prayer is that when we come, our hearts would just be encouraged. We would realize we're not in this alone. We'd be able to look side to side and be encouraged by each other. And then we'd be able to look up to God and be encouraged by who he is, that he stays the same. And he is there for us with arms wide open for us to come back over and over and over. So if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know we've been in the book of Acts. We've actually, going all the way back to last August, have been walking through the story of God. And we started in Genesis and have been trying to show the big movements of the Bible, and then we got to the life of Jesus, and then now where Jesus' life ended off, the early church in the book of Acts picked right up, and that's where we've been. So today we're in Acts chapter 8. Last week I talked about the first few verses of Acts, and so here's what's happened in the story. The gospel, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that was just as much a promise that he would keep as it was a command for the disciples to keep. Because he's not just saying, look, you, if, you, if you fail, then the gospel's not going to go forward. Jesus is saying, look, I'm promising you, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. I promise you, some of you are going to be my witnesses all the way to the ends of the earth. So what do we see? In Jerusalem, the church is built. Thousands of people come to know Jesus through the good news of the gospel. People are constantly add, being added to the number of the church. But there's persecution, and that persecution mounts so much to where in Acts chapter 7, we read the story of Stephen being martyred for his faith because he was being a witness to who Jesus was. And that persecution in the beginning of Acts chapter 8 led the original church in Jerusalem to spread because they realized that there was growing hostility and that their lives were in danger. So just like in Genesis, you read of Joseph said this about his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What? The hostility, what the world meant for evil of trying to stop the movement of Christianity in the first century, we realize that God meant for good. So as there's persecution, these disciples go out and begin to spread the gospel. And where we're picking up today is that in verse 5, the disciples get to Samaria. The disciples get to Samaria. And we're reading specifically this morning about Philip and his ministry in Samaria. So I'm going to read a little bit and stop and talk a little bit and read and stop and talk. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 verses 5 through 25. So here, here's, the, here's the first part that I want to dive into this morning. I want to read a few verses about Philip when he gets to Samaria. It says, Philip in verse 5 went down to the city of Samaria or city in Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. 
But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So we've been talking about how does the gospel move? What happens when the gospel moves? Because you go all the way back to the beginning of Acts, it was just maybe a few, a little more than 100 people. And now this movement has spread to thousands and the gospel's moving to places they never imagined it was go. It would go and they realize this movement is growing. And so what we're asking is how did the gospel move? And he, here's what I want us to see. As the gospel moves today, the first point is that <clears throat> the gospel reveals what we think about power. The gospel reveals what we think about power. Because in this first part of our text this morning, we, we actually see two competing powers. Do you see them in the text with me? L- look at Simon's magic and look at Philip's gospel. You see two competing powers and you actually see it in the same words that Luke uses because you see in verses 9 and 11, the, the people were amazed at Simon's magic. But then later in verse 13, it's Simon who's amazed at the gospel. Then you see in verses 10 and 11, the people paid attention to Simon But then in verse 6, you see that the people after the gospel came paid attention to Philip. In verse 10, the people actually said that Simon was the power of God, but Philip came with miracles of power to heal and cast out demons. So in this text, we see two competing powers coming about. The Samaritans, it, it seems like they were clearly religious in their view of power because they didn't just look at Simon's magic and attribute it to some earthly explanation, they looked at it and they said, this man must be the very power of God in our midst. I mean, they were deeply religious. They acknowledged the divine power. They wanted it near them. I mean, it's not like they were scared of Simon. They, they wanted him. They, in some sense, kind of worshiped Simon. And they certainly honored Simon. So when we see these two competing powers, here's what I want us to see. I want us to see ourselves in the text because there are competing powers in our life as well. There are competing powers in our life as well because just like the Samaritans, we are all deeply religious. And I don't mean we're all deeply churchgoers because that's not true. And I mean we're all deeply religious because there's something ingrained in our hearts where we cannot help but worship something. Do you see that here? The, the Samaritans couldn't help but worship something. They substituted Philip in their place because they saw magic. They saw this deception that he was bringing to them, and they said, hey, this must be the power of God. Let's worship that. It's designed in our hearts that we're meant to worship something. So just like the Samaritans, we're worshiping. And so what did they worship? They worshiped the one that they thought had power over them. We worship what we think has the power to save us. So I think right here in Acts 8, the gospel moves into our hearts as it reveals what we think has the power to save us. The gospel moves into our hearts and it reveals what we think has the power to save us. You say, Johnny, hold on a minute, back up. I don't think I really worship stuff. Maybe worship God, I don't really use that word. Uh, but, But convince me that I worship something. Convince me that I worship something. Well, I, I think here if we follow this line of power, The question of power is really a heart question because we attribute power to what we worship. We worship whatever we think has the power to save us and we want to be saved from what we think our biggest problem in life is. We want to be saved from what we think is our biggest problem in life. 
So what's my biggest problem in life that I tend to think I need to be saved from? For me, it's a lack of knowledge. I think if I just know the right thing, I can figure it out. I mean, just give me the right information and I can get everything else in line. If, if I know, I mean, you, you can ask my wife. I will argue about something so small that she says, what does this matter? And I say, it's not right. She goes, but what does that matter? You know, it's because I think if we can get the right knowledge and information lined up, then everything else in life will flow with it. But what is it for you? What's your biggest problem in life that you feel like you need to be saved from? And then what do you think has the power to save you from it? Is your biggest problem in life that you just feel like you've got nobody and you just need to be accepted by somebody? Is that your biggest problem? Because then the power you're looking for is acceptance, love, relationship. And you're going to come to that and you're going to go, this must be the power of God because, oh boy, now I feel like I'm accepted and I'm loved. and Okay, all this fulfillment, I got it. Maybe it's meaninglessness. Maybe you feel like you're going to float through all of life and be completely and utterly meaningless and you're not going to have a place and you're not going to make a difference and one day you're going to look back and you're going to be old and alone and you're going to go, what difference did I make in this world? So what are you looking for that has the power to save you from that? You're going to look for a position, maybe work, maybe a cause, and you're going to throw yourself into that and think, I'm going to make a difference in this world if it's the last thing that I do. Maybe it's sadness. Maybe it's poverty. Maybe it's a lack of joy or loneliness. Maybe the thing that we really want is we feel like I don't have power. I need power to make a difference. I want to be in control. And the good news that we see in this text is that as the gospel moved into Samaria, it revealed what these people truly thought was powerful. So I'm going to ask us, as the gospel moves to Marietta, Georgia, what do you really think has power in your life? What do you really think has the power to save you? See, the good news is that as God reveals our heart by showing us what we think has the power to save us, he actually does us a huge favor and shows us that all those things we worship because we think it has power, they're all empty. See, Simon's magic, he, he, he was convincing the people he had power. It was all based on deception. And the idols in your life are no different. It's all based on deception. I love singing about Jesus overthrowing the grave because it shows us the one thing that can last forever. And every other fulfillment you run after Every other thing you worship, every other thing you think has the power to save you will not last beyond the grave. So as the gospel moves into our hearts, it reveals what we see as powerful. But then as we continue to move on, there's a whole other aspect to what's happening here in Acts chapter 8. And it's that the gospel is leading Jews to go engage with Samaritans in Samaria. That is miraculously unbelievable. There was, there was incredible tension between Jews and Samaritans. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as, as somewhat of half-breeds, kind of like a step in between Jew and Gentile. That Samaritans kind of had a Jewish background. They even kind of worshipped the same God, but then they worshipped in a different place, on a different mountain. They had different expectations for what God was going to do for them, and they really didn't like each other. So for Jews to cross that boundary would have 
pushed on the people barriers of the time. And that's the second point. We see how the gospel addresses our view of power, but the gospel also addresses our view of people. Because the gospel led the Jews to go and embrace people that there was historically racial tension with. There was a massive relational boundary. There was a massive cultural boundary that was underlying the relationships between Jews and Gentiles. But here's the point for us today. Let's again read ourselves into the text. Our view of people is only a symptom of our heart. So our view of power is a symptom of our heart because we're looking for something that has the power to save us. And our view of people is a symptom of our heart. Why? Why is our view of people a symptom of our heart? Well, let's run down some of the different ways we view people. Comparison. How do we compare ourselves with others? How do we compete with others based on our comparisons? Maybe we're comparing others based on education, their lack and what I have. Maybe we're comparing people based on money. And that can go both ways, right? That can go negative or positive. Man, that, rich people are so snooty. Or man, those poor people, they just don't get it. They should just get a job and work hard. Right? So we can compare people based on money, based on clothing and style, based on job and your, your status at your workplace. We can, we can compare one another based on race or maybe based on cultural practices and celebrations and foods. I mean, we look, sometimes you can look at groups of people and go, that's just weird. I don't know how, I can't do that. No, there's no good reason you would do something like that, right? So there's this comparison in our hearts with other people that's kind of natural. And I want to ask this question, why do people barriers exist? Why do people barriers exist? Why do barriers in our heart exist between us and other people in in the first place? What makes us compare ourselves with people? What makes us look, and here's where my heart began to show in this text, is that I I compare myself with people where their weaknesses just so happen to be my strengths. Isn't that convenient? I'll identify places in their life where they're weak, and I'm strong, and it makes me feel like I've got the upper hand. We think different means wrong. So why do these people barriers exist? Well, here's a few reasons. One, I think that we believe the differences in others are uncrossable bridges. We think the gap's just too wide and too far. We can't cross that gap. I think we give ultimate meaning to our differences with other people. I think we take our differences, that people groups, that races, that cultures, that people who speak different languages, people who look different than us, act different than us, are different ages than us. I think we look at our differences with people. Sometimes we ascribe to that ultimate meaning. And here's what I mean by that, is that you think it's an identity issue and they are just who they are. They are just who they are and that will never change. And I am who I am and that can never change. And so we can never have a relationship. We can never cross those bridges. I think barriers exist because we assume people's stories. We assume people's stories. So we see things in their life, and instead of saying, you know what, there's a story behind that, and I don't know that story, we assume the story. We assume that we know why things are happening the way they are. We assume we know why people react the way they react. We assume, I assume, as a majority culture, white, male in the South, there's a lot of people's shoes that I can't stand in. There's a lot of experiences I will never have because I'm a white male. And if 
I don't stop and take a listening posture to try to, assu- and to, try to learn someone's backstory, then I'm going to assume their backstory. And I'm going to go, hey, this was easy for me. Why is it not easy for you? So I think barriers exist because we assume stories. I think we don't see the world through other people's eyes. And last, I don't, I don't think we want to accommodate differences that force us out of our comfort zones. Do you see what's happening here in, in the book of Acts? When the gospel came, it forced this rub between people groups that should not have existed according to those cultural norms. And so when the gospel comes, it reveals how we view people, but listen to how the gospel is the solution for our people barriers. While we see differences as uncrossable bridges, Jesus saw the difference between God and man and crossed it by becoming one of us. While we think differences are unreconcilable because of our sin, while we think differences are unreconcilable because of who we are, Jesus crosses those unreconcilable differences and comes and loves us even while we're God's enemies. While we assume people's stories, God didn't have to assume our story. He knew our whole story, yet he didn't want to just know the story and see the story. He sent Jesus to experience our story. So every barrier between people that we can come up with, Jesus has crossed that barrier for us. And so if we're ever going to address the people barriers in our own heart, we've got to first recognize that our view of people is just a symptom of our heart. And if we're viewing people as constantly having barriers between us and them, then we've got to come down to our heart and, and ask, do we understand the barriers Jesus crossed to come to us? Do we understand those barriers. And those barriers are only o- overcome when the gospel moves into our hearts. So we see that Jesus was the first cross-cultural missionary. Even before Acts 8 and the Jews engaged the Samaritans, even before that, long before, Jesus came into this world, crossed the barrier of a sinless, holy, and perfect God, came to live and experience what it means to be limited, what it means to be broken, what it means to be hungry and thirsty. Jesus experienced that. Talk about crossing a bridge that seems uncrossable. Christ did that for us. But then because of that, we're free to look at one another, not based on our differences, but based on our common need for grace. I think what motivated Philip to go and engage the Samaritans was not the barriers between. I think what happened was Philip began to see, I mean, these people need grace just like I do. And these, these people's, Sin is just like my sin. And so we're free to not try to be unified around common interests. Because if we're only unified around common interests, then our community is going to be really small and we're going to constantly have barriers with people who don't like what we like, don't look like what we look like. But we don't have to base it around common interests. We can base it around a common savior. So, so are, you, are you following me for a second? The gospel moves in and it addresses power. Simon used to be this man of power and they worshiped him. But the gospel came in and said, no, this is a far greater power. So in our hearts, what what are we giving power to? What are we giving power to that we think can save us from our biggest problem? And God comes in and graciously shows us it's not the things of this world. Those are all hollow and empty. But then the other example of how the gospel comes in and reveals our hearts is it, it, manifests and reveals the people barriers that we have and shows that our view of people is really just a symptom of what's going on in our 
heart. And so the point of this entire text, I think, comes when we realize the gospel moves by moving in our hearts. The gospel moves by moving in our hearts. So follow with me what happens in verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your, silver and per- may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of Of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So follow this. To further put an exclamation point on the people barriers, God actually didn't give the people of Samaria the Holy Spirit right away. So when you read this text, don't think, why did they not get the Spirit? What's the theological emphasis here? What's God, is there certain, okay, so did this have to do with the Spirit followed the apostles and the apostles had to lay their hands on everybody? So who's the apostle at Shalford so we can get the Holy Spirit? That's not what's happening here, okay? This is a break from the norm. The norm is that when you accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes. This is a break from the norm. Why is this a break from the norm? I think so God could put an exclamation point on the fact that Jews and Samaritans were now unified under the banner of the gospel. And it would allow the surrounding regions to be in awe of anything that could unite two people groups that so hated each other. That's what I think is happening right here. That's why the apostles had to go. It's not because they held some spirit card in their pocket that they knew the number to dial and said, okay, spirit, we're good. Like, let's go. No, it says the spirit went and, or the apostles went and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And in their praying, the spirit was sent. Why? To show that Jews and Samaritans can now be one family. But when Simon saw that, Simon went back to his old ways. Simon said, what great power. What incredible power to be able to pray, lay your hands, and someone gets the Spirit. If I could do that, maybe I could be worshipped again. Maybe I could be in charge again. Maybe I could be a leader again. And I've got a lot of money. L- let me see if I can buy my way into this place of influence. And when Peter, who's now on the scene, rebukes him, notice where Peter goes. He goes straight to Simon's heart. He says, your heart is not right before God. So pray to God and repent so that your heart may be put right. This was a heart issue even for Simon. So when the gospel moves into our hearts, it reveals our hearts, it confronts our hearts, but God's confrontation always includes a path to restoration. God's confrontation always includes a path to God's restoration. So what happens when our hearts are revealed? Well, just like Simon, his heart's revealed, the gospel comes to Simon, and he's still trying to mix his old ways and his new gospel ways. And so here's, here's what I was thinking about this week. When the gospel confronts our idols, we're forced with a dilemma. We've either got to 
compromise the gospel or compromise our idols because we can't have both. Either the idols really will save us or they really won't. But Simon's trying to hold on to both. And Simon's trying to bring them both in the gospel and say, you know what, hey, but, but okay, Jesus, and I'm following Philip, and, I, and I've been baptized, but can I still buy this power to give the Holy Spirit? And Peter says, no chance. Because when the gospel comes in, it comes in unrivaled, and it confronts all of our idols one by one. It'll reveal it, bring it to the surface, and confront it and say, you can't worship this. Jesus says, you can't worship this and worship me. You can't hold on to this and hold on to me. Because what we think we hold on to while we're holding on to the gospel, really is holding on to us. What we think we own as we're coming to the gospel and we're going, okay, I'm gonna come to the gospel, but I'm gonna bring all this with me. I'm not quite ready to give this up and turn away from everything yet. And Jesus lovingly says, well, we'll we'll confront those. I'll show you that those aren't enough. I'll show you that that's not enough for you. I'll show you that that will always disappoint you. But here's the good news. The gospel reveals our hearts. The gospel confronts our hearts. And the gospel restores our hearts. The gospel restores our hearts. God is so loving that when he comes to reveal and confront, he always fixes what he shows us is broken. God doesn't confront us just to show us our brokenness and leave us in a puddle of sadness, feeling like we have no hope. That's not who God is. Because when Peter addresses Simon, he doesn't condemn him and leave. His confrontation includes a path of restoration. Pray and repent. He's saying, talk to God and turn back to God. And that's the path of restoration for all of us. And as the gospel comes to us, we're confronted. What will you worship? What will you worship? And if it's anything other than Jesus, here's God's path of restoration. Will you talk to God and will you turn back to God? Will you talk to God and will you turn back to God? When you're confronted in your sin by God and his spirit in you, when you get a, a sense of your sin, do you have a sense that God is constantly annoyed with how often you mess up? Do you have a sense that God's constantly annoyed with how often you mess up? Do you think God's tired of you coming to him with things you've done wrong? Do you think suffering in your life is because of things you've done wrong and now God's trying to punish you? The gospel tells us that none of those things are true. None of those things are true. In every confrontation that God brings to your life, he stands waiting and ready to bring restoration to everything that's broken. So when you come to the realization that you've built your life around a job that will never satisfy you and you come crashing down and you realize you've got to pick up the pieces and you don't even know where all the pieces are, God stands ready saying, my grace is enough for you while you are at your weakest. My grace is enough for you while you have nowhere else to go. There's kind of two responses we have here. One is the positive way of actually praying and repenting, but look at Simon. 
commentaries kind of disagree. Is Simon really saved or not? I'm not sure that's the point of the text. I think the point of the text is to make us ask that question. And I think the fact that we've got to ask that question gives us a clue to the answer. Peter tells him, pray and repent. Talk to God and turn to God. He's ready. He's ready to give you grace. He's ready to love you. He's ready to restore you. He's ready to welcome you back into his loving arms. And Simon turns back to Peter and says, oh, would you pray for me? I think a mark of being a child of God is that you're ready to run to your father's arms. But I don't think Simon understood grace. I think he was scared to come back to God. I think he was scared of the punishment Simon talked about, that Simon would perish. And I think Simon was scared, and so he told Peter, pray for me. But the good news today is that you don't have to ask somebody else to pray for you. We will, and we do. But the good news of the gospel is that you can come to God on your own, personally, and he is ready to receive you. Because when the gospel moves into your life, the gospel confronts your idols. The gospel confronts the things you're building your life around. And I want to invite you today to let the gospel do that. It's a scary thing for God to reveal things in your heart that you didn't even know were in there. But Psalm 139 says this prayer, God, would you search me and know me? Would you search me and know me? Would you be willing to pray that prayer? Would you be willing to pray that prayer today? God, search me and know me. Try me and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me on the way everlasting. I hope we would pray that prayer today for this reason. Because what God reveals in our hearts that we're building our life around, he confronts to show us that they're hollow, they're empty. All of their promises are nothing but he reveals it and confronts it so that he can bring restoration to our life and show you, but I am eternally loving. I am steadfast. I will never waver in my love for you. I'll never waver in my acceptance of you. I will never waver in the grace that I'll pour out to you. And here's why, because Jesus took everything you deserved. And so now I'm gonna love you just like Jesus deserves to be loved. Perfect, infinite love. So the invitation this morning is, to stop building your life on hollow idols and allow the gospel to reveal, confront, and restore. Because that's how the gospel moves in Acts chapter eight. So we're gonna sing another song as we end our service this morning. And I want us to pray before we sing. So let's pray. And I'm gonna lead us in just a little time of, of prayer as we get ready to respond. Psalm 139, verse 23. Would you make this your prayer? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Would you pray that this morning? I'm going to give you a a few moments to pray that. Ask God to show you what it is you've been trusting more than him. Ask God to show you what it is you're believing in to have the power to save you.
would you be so daring as to ask God to show you just how hollow those things are? Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. The second part of that verse says, try me and know my thoughts. Make that your prayer this morning. We learn in Acts 8, verse 8, that as the gospel came to the city in Samaria, to these Samaritans, it says there was much joy in this city. Because when the gospel moves, as it's revealing and confronting and restoring, it brings great joy because now we're in the light. It's the joy of freedom. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. When we know this truth, it's going to set us free, free to be truly joyful with a joy that can never be broken, never be taken. But every other joy you try to build your life on in this life, everything else you try to build on, everything else you're setting your hope on to bring you true and lasting joy will disappoint. But the gospel comes in your life to take over. So here's how we say it at Shalford. We never graduate from the gospel because we never stop needing Jesus. So even if you're a believer this morning and you know Jesus and you've known Jesus for a long time, the gospel is still good for your life because it still reveals your heart and it confronts your idols and it will restore you by inviting you to repent and pray to God. And if you're not a believer this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus and you're realizing right now in this moment that you've been building your life on something other than Jesus, the gospel is for you because it invites you to repent and pray to God through faith and to show that to our church and the world through baptism. The gospel is good news for you today because it first tells you the bad news that what you've built your life on is not good. And it invites you to the only good and lasting thing to build your life on. So Psalm 139 verse 24 ends with this. Lead me in the way everlasting. God, I pray we'd be willing to follow you as you lead us in the way everlasting. Encourage us with the gospel this morning, just like you did to the Samaritans. Confront the things in our life that we think have real power. Confront the things in our life where there's barriers between people, God. And I pray that everything you're confronting in our life would make its way back to our heart. And then you would change our hearts this morning so that we would see you more clearly. We would know you better. We'd get a real sense of your presence in our lives and we would follow you all the way to the grave and then gloriously right through the grave into the other side, knowing that death doesn't stop you. But we love you this morning, but only because you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name that we can pray. Amen.